Wisdom and compassion are the two great wings of the Dharma. And they're two of the perfections of the Buddha's enlightenment. His compassion manifest in the very great loving care he had for all beings. Care for the suffering and the wish to alleviate that suffering. And it was this compassion that fueled the effort of lifetimes of practice. That feeling of compassion which sustained those efforts and it culminated in the wisdom of his enlightenment which understood so deeply the causes of the suffering of how it is that we get so entangled even in our efforts to be happy still doing things which bring us more unhappiness he then spent 45 years after his enlightenment walking around northern India, teaching and admonishing and exhorting and sometimes even tricking beings into doing that which was for their welfare and their well-being. He used whatever skillful means was appropriate to enable people to awaken, to awaken from the dream of ignorance, from the dream of delusion. One monk who had been just hankering after the pleasures of lay life, even after he ordained, the Buddha conjured up this vision of the deva realms, the heaven realms. And he said to this monk who happened to be his cousin, Nanda, he said, I promise you this heavenly rebirth in 500 celestial nymphs, if you'll practice. He practiced. (laughs) And lo and behold, he got enlightened, he became an arhant, and then he went to release the Buddha from his promise. On the other side, sometimes the the Buddha would be very uh, severe in in his compassion. He had the charioteer uh, from his princely days, his name was Chana who had been with him all through his childhood and young adulthood and actually was with him when he left home. But Chana became a monk, he ordained, uh, but he was coasting on sort of his past association, his past friendship with the Buddha and never did any practice. And it came time to the Buddha's death and still Chana was just lolling about in the monkhood. And the Buddha, one of his last instructions to the Sangha was that no one in the Sangha should have any association with Chana, that they should not even speak with him. This is quite, imagine being Chana and having the Buddha's last, almost last words, nobody speaks to him. And then the Buddha passed away. And it's said that Chana was filled with such remorse about this and, and shame that it also inspired him to practice, and he became enlightened. And it's just interesting, and there are countless stories of the wide range of skillful means that the Buddha used to help awaken us. He saw into the empty nature of all things, and he wanted all beings to see into the empty nature. He awakened from the dream of ignorance and wanted all beings to awaken. The motivation was compassion and the skillful means was guided by wisdom. And all of the 45 years of teaching, of admonishing, of exhorting, of tricking, of all the ways he used to help awaken people is condensed or summarized in one verse of the Dhammapada, which is a collection of verses of the teachings. 
Everything is condensed into this one verse where it says, refrain from unskillful, unwholesome actions. Perform skillful ones. Perform good actions. Purify the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. Now the last line in this stanza is quite interesting. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas because it points to the timelessness of the Dharma. There are countless Buddhas before Siddhartha Gautama and as it's taught there'll be countless Buddhas in the future. And yet the teaching, the Dharma, always remains the same because the truth of suffering and freedom from suffering is timeless, is not time-bound. Refrain from unskillful actions. Perform good ones, wholesome ones. Purify the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. But also out of his compassion, he didn't leave it at that. Because then we might wonder, well, what are skillful actions? What are unskillful actions? What should we do? What shouldn't we do? Rather than leave it to our own speculation, quite happily the Buddha laid out. Don't do unskillful actions. These are what they are. (laughs) Just so we don't miss them. He talked about 10 unwholesome actions to avoid. Why? Because these actions bring harm and suffering to ourselves, harm and suffering to others. If we wish to be happy, if we wish to be free, if we wish to be awakened, the Buddha is saying these are the ten actions which we should refrain from. There are three actions of the body, there are four actions of speech, and three of the mind. And in different contexts, we've spoken about many of these. But this is a very simple list to integrate into our understanding. It's really a guideline, a reference point for us in our lives. The first unwholesome action is very obvious. The Buddha said, refrain from killing. Avoid taking the life of living beings. And by extension, not harming physically ourselves or others. People shouldn't kill one another. Just imagine what the world would be like. It's just this very simple and seemingly obvious aspect of morality were followed. The world would be a very different place. Now we're killing animals, either for livelihood or for sport, refrain from killing, or killing things because we don't like them, they make us uncomfortable. Our culture is obsessed with making sure that there's nothing, no being, the slightest bit unpleasant to us survives. And the supermarket shelves are filled with raid and, I don't know, I don't even know all the names of them. You know, something we don't like, gone. You know, or sometimes you get these catalogs, you spray them, you vacuum them up, you, you know, incinerate them. Can we change our attitude, you know, about other living beings, even when they might not be in our eyes the most pleasant looking? Certainly, in their eyes, they probably are. <laughs> Actually, there's another whole story about this, but the dung beetle story, uh, which we'll tell another time. <laughs> now, probably most of us don't go around killing big things. But if on occasion you kill little things, pay attention. You know, what is happening in the mind? Beside the obvious harm that's done to the other being. 
Look at the harm that's done in one's own mind as well. Just that feeling of contraction, of separation, of alienation. This is what's being fed by, by the unskillfully unwholesome act of killing. Okay, the second of the unwholesome actions is not killing, it's not stealing. Again, it seems quite obvious, not taking that which isn't offered. We might extend that understanding a little bit and really look at it in terms of not taking that which is not so necessary, which actually isn't needed, just as a way of, again, becoming more aware, more conscious of our relationship to things around us, to resources. And we see on our planet today, with the immense population explosion, this is an area of very big concern. It's not killing, it's not stealing. The third unwholesome action to avoid, to refrain from, is a tremendously important area in our lives, and it has to do with refraining from sexual misconduct from sexual actions which cause harm. And we see that there is a tremendous power of this energy in our lives. The power of sexual energy, the power of desire, the power of lust. It's really quite amazing. I can't remember whether one of us has mentioned one of Upandita's great lines where he said in one of his Dharma talks, lust cracks the brain. <laughs> and it's, it's a wonderful line because it's so true. Just in terms of how this passion can so overcome us and we become so enslaved by it that it actually clouds over any consideration of whether the action is skillful or not, harmonious or not, loving or not. So the Buddha is saying, refrain from unskillful sexual actions, those which are involved in deception, getting involved with people who are committed to others. It's all fairly obvious when our mind is clear and balanced, we see, we know. But under the influence of strong desire or strong passion, we lose sight of our understanding. Refraining from sexual misconduct means different things in different contexts. Just as a lay person in the world, it means one thing. That is not, not doing those actions which cause harm sexually to oneself or others. In this kind of context where we take the precept to refrain from sexual activity. So then it means something else for a monk and a nun who are committed for the time that they are ordained in that way. It means complete abstinence for the entire time of their life as a monk or a nun. There is tremendous value in terms of understanding and insight in periods of abstinence, whether it's temporary, you know, as on retreat, or for longer periods, because in periods of abstinence, we can look very carefully and very deeply at the nature of desire itself, precisely because we have chosen not to act on it. So as we're sitting and strong desire arises, strong lust arises, a lot can be learned from that. First we learn its power. I'm sure most of you, if not everyone, at some point or another, has had these strong fantasies arise in the mind. We can see how consuming, how compelling, how intoxicating they can be. Not much sloth and torpor when <laughs> lust is in the mind, when lust is cracking the brain. <laughs> but one of the great things that can be learned 
about the nature of desire from the situation or experience of abstinence is that it is a force which does not particularly need to be fulfilled on the one hand, nor does it need to be repressed, which is our usual mode of thinking about it. We either act on it or we're pushing it down, we're repressing it. And the great gift of the practice of awareness, as with the whole range of emotions and feelings and energies, is that we can allow everything to arise, to see, to see it, to be mindful of it, not to be identified with it, and we see that desire, lust in the mind, like everything else, is impermanent and empty of self, does not really belong to anyone. If we can create the space, it arises, we feel it, we experience it, and it passes. And we see we did not need to have to do anything about it. We didn't need to act on it, we didn't need to suppress it. So it gives us a great freedom, this understanding gives us a great freedom of choice, of wise discrimination in our life in the world. We don't need to be driven by this powerful energy. The Buddha is singling this activity out for us to take care that we don't engage in unskillful sexual actions, those which cause harm to ourselves, to others. These are the three unwholesome actions of body, not killing, not stealing, not committing sexual misconduct. Then he talked about four unskillful actions of speech. Now this is quite amazing to me. You know, that of all the unwholesome actions, four of them are about the way we use our speech. Because the Buddha understood, and we can when we, when we pay attention, how powerful a conditioning force the use of speech is with respect to our minds, with respect to our relationships. But mostly in our lives, I think, we relegate speech to kind of a second-class realm of spiritual practice. we give some kind of lip service to speech. You know, as yes, it's important, but do we give it as much attention as, in terms of our spiritual practice as, as our sitting, or walking, or being on retreat? Probably not. Labuda is saying that this is key, this is central of the Eightfold Path. It's one of the, it's one of the elements, right, speech. So what are the four kinds of speech that the Buddha is saying very clearly, very simply, very straightforwardly, this is unwholesome. Don't do it. I, sometimes, I, love, I love the teachings because they're so uh, uncompromising. You know, he's, he, the Buddha wasn't trying to be polite. <laughs> he just said, yeah, this is how it is. These things cause suffering. If you don't want to suffer, avoid doing them. So what is the first of speech? Again, it's fairly obvious. Avoid false speech. Don't lie. But when we look in our lives, this is more subtle than is first apparent because there are so many gradations of lying. And we often find ourselves lying or engaged in false speech from a variety of motivations, some of which we justify that kind of speech to ourselves. So in one extreme, there's just downright falsehood. You know, maybe it's out of fear or because we want something. Exaggeration is a kind of lying. You know, where we just make something 
a little bigger or a little better or a little worse, or something that's not quite the truth. When we're not simply being truthful, it's very revealing to look at our motivations. What, what's behind it? Are we trying to protect something in ourselves? Maybe a fear that people won't like us, you know, if we're being truthful in this situation. Or sometimes it's a misguided sense of trying to protect someone else. Well, I won't be truthful because in some way they can't handle it. No, and it'll be better if I don't say the truth here. But this really is a tremendous disservice. Because it's really causing people to doubt their own perceptions of reality. Now, when we say something that's untrue, the other person might very well feel that something's wrong but not quite, not quite be sure, and so they begin to doubt themselves and doubt their own perceptions. It's a great disservice because it diminishes people's ability to trust. The Buddha was very strong about this. You know, in one sutta, in the, it's called the advice to Rahula, who was his son. And Rahula, I think, at age seven, he became a novice, a monk, and then I think he was 20 or so when he uh, practiced and finally became enlightened. But in the course of his training, there's one discourse that the Buddha gave specifically for him, and part of it is about the importance of not saying that which is untrue. And the Buddha said, for no reason should we say that which is untrue. That's a very strong teaching. And what I've found over the years, that something that seems so obvious is actually very difficult to do. Just to be completely honest. And it, it amazes me that it is so difficult. Because why should it be? The simplest thing in the world should be just to be truthful, to say how things are. And yet I've noticed this wide range of motivations which in some way or other cause smaller or bigger shadings of what is true. There's a very inspiring book which was published some years ago. And it's really largely about this issue. It's called Life and Death in Shanghai. And it was written by a Chinese woman in the time of the Cultural Revolution who was imprisoned by the Red Guard. And I mean, in many ways, it's one of these horror stories. She was imprisoned and tortured and they kept wanting her to admit a connection with one of the political figures in China that she and her husband had, and it was untrue. And even under this horrible condition and being tortured for it, she was unwilling to be dishonest. She was unwilling to say that which was not true. And they said, you can be free. We'll let you go if you just say what we want. And she said she would rather stay in prison. And the book goes on to her eventual release and finally moving to America where she was living in Washington. And the book recounts the whole context of this. It was tremendously inspiring to me because it just pointed to the understanding that there are really certain values which are greater than life itself. You know, and there are many examples of this from the Buddhist texts. 
And it's quite amazing to have such strength of heart, such courage, such commitment to values of truthfulness, of honesty. It's said in the Bodhisattva's long career, you know, many, many lifetimes in all sorts of situations, and doing many unskillful things in, in the course of his struggles and efforts for Buddhahood, that even as he would do different unwholesome actions, it said from the time he entered this Bodhisattva path, that the one thing he never did was knowingly say that which was not true. So, I think it's worth our reflection, our very deep consideration, and our looking at this issue in our lives. That's the first of the actions of speech that are unskillful. The second action of speech which is unskillful, unwholesome, conducive to suffering, is using harsh, angry, abusive language. That the energy that we invest in our speech is important. It has impact. It has impact on others. It has impact on ourselves. So we need to pay attention. We need to feel and be aware of the energy which is suffusing our speech. And when it feels abusive or harsh or aggressive, can we back off a little bit? Can we settle down? Can we take a few breaths? The whole path of practice of understanding is realizing that we actually have choices all along the way. We don't simply need to be acting out the patterns of our conditioning. And this is the great gift of awareness. It gives us the possibility of choice. False speech, aggressive or harsh speech, the third of the unwholesome actions of speech is gossip, backbiting, speaking about each other. And what's quite amazing is the delight that the mind takes in that. It's, it's a very common pattern. I mean, when people get together, one of the most common things we do is talk about one another, mostly people who are not there. What's going on? You know, what is the motivation behind it? And what's happening in our own minds as we're doing it? My experience is that it often, in some subtle way or other, is reaffirming or strengthening a sense of self, and often self-importance. At times, it is not particularly malicious, and at other times it is. I had an interesting experience a couple of years ago with a man who was writing a book on sort of the consciousness movement in America in the last you know, 10 years or 15 years. And he came up to interview me. And this is a very, um, he's, a rather well-known and accomplished writer and interviewer. This interview was amazing because we were sitting, we were just sitting in my living room, talking very kind of informally. And what he was doing, he kept trying to get me to talk about all the other teachers. In, he was hoping, of course, in judgmental and unflattering ways. And he was so skillful you know, and how he would just kind of be leading on with his questions. I was very grateful that I was actually able to see what he was doing. Because it could have been so easy just to slip into giving my opinions of this person and that person. And, and as it turns out, and as the book turned out, the book was just filled, you know, with this kind of backbiting and gossip and very destructive, very unwholesome. So I think we really need to watch and to look at our 
forms of communication around this issue. And it's, of course, not limited to when somebody's interviewing us for a book. It's just how we are with each other, with our closest friends. And to see the effect on the mind. The Buddha is saying, this is an unwholesome action of speech, this kind of gossip. And the fourth unwholesome action of speech is frivolous talk, is useless talk. This is probably 95% of our speech, <laughs> when we really pay attention. If we would ask ourselves the question before we say anything, is this of any use? <laughs> probably 95%. You know, we would have to say, of not much use. What happens when we engage in this kind of frivolous talk, often, when this becomes a habit, really our words become worthless. They lose any power. So it's very helpful to bring awareness, to bring consciousness. To this. Speech is a major influence in our lives. And the Buddha is pointing to this importance. So three unwholesome actions of the body, killing, harming physically other beings, stealing sexual misconduct, Four unwholesome actions of speech, which are lying or false speech in any of its gradations, harsh speech or abusive or aggressive speech, backbiting gossip, and frivolous talk. And the last three of the unwholesome actions, which the Buddha said, avoid, refrain from, they only cause suffering. The last three are three unwholesome actions of mind, three activities of mind, three habits of mind. And the first of these is covetousness, wanting what others have. And it's really the mind of greed, wanting, of feeling we never have enough. And so in seeing other people's well-being or happiness or possessions or wealth or whatever, that tendency of mind which covets it. Oh, if only I could have that. It's just the opposite of the Brahma Vihara of Mudita, you know, where we take delight, where we take joy in other people's prosperity or abundance or happiness or well-being. Instead of that feeling of joy, it's the feeling of wanting. The archetypal image for this mind of covetousness within the Buddhist cosmology, it's depicted as the realm of hungry ghosts. That is, beings with huge desires and minute capacities to fulfill them. And so often in the iconography, there are these huge beings with huge stomachs and a pinhole mouth. So no matter how much, you know, they manage to get in no possibility of being fulfilled. That's really a representation of the mind state of covetousness, of wanting. It keeps us endlessly unhappy. So we want to see this force in the mind and to really learn how to free ourselves from its grip. The second unskillful state of mind, action of mind, is the action, the mind action, of ill will or aversion. Hatred, anger, sorrow, grief. And this arises, of course, when we don't get what we want. When we don't get what we want, we get angry, annoyed, irritated. 
Or it happens when we do get what we don't want. You're sitting and pain arises, or some painful, unpleasant mental state arises. Do we welcome it? Or we say, oh, good, here's a chance for me to practice patience, loving kindness, constancy. It's probably not our first reaction. <laughs> when unpleasant things come to us that we don't want, the conditioned, habituated reaction is dislike, aversion. How can I get rid of this? So we want to see this, and, and a good part of our practice is seeing this conditioning arise in the mind. And again, it's quite amazing how deep it goes in us. Because we can have aversion, ill will, not only about present experiences, that is a pain in the body or a painful emotion, we can have a memory of a painful experience and feel aversion. It's not even happening now. But we just get lost in this mind world and then get all worked up about it. Not even that. We can, we can start feeling aversion not only for what's happening in the present or what happened in the past but is not happening now. We can feel aversion for what we imagine will happen in the future. This is a striking capability. I mean, it really is. What are we doing? <laughs> it's so obvious that we are creating our own suffering, our own mental suffering. And yet it's a very common tendency. Our minds have been trained in this, undoubtedly for lifetimes. Notice the contraction. Notice the suffering when we are identified with the ill will or the aversion or the hatred. Because when you notice that, you can feel the suffering of this mind state. Now, interesting questions come up about the, the states of grief and sorrow. And so I think it's worth investigating this, worth exploring but a very great delicacy is needed. Because we want to be able to look honestly and deeply and truthfully at what is at the root, what is at the source of these emotions. What's at the source of grief? What's at the source of sorrow? So we want to have the honesty and the willingness and the courage to do that. And we also want to have the tenderness and the openness and the compassion to actually feel them when they arise. So we're not using the investigative mind as a way of distancing ourselves. So this is a very delicate balance. When we begin to look at sorrow and grief, we begin to see that almost always it comes from the experience some kind of loss. It's because of loss of something that we feel these emotions. And it might be loss of people that we love, loss of possessions, loss of certain experiences. And one little footnote to this, really another word for loss is change. Every change is a loss of something. So what is our relationship to loss? Have we really looked at that? Is there aversion to this feeling of loss? Is there attachment to what we have lost? Now, the Buddha himself was keenly aware of this feeling because it is part of the truth of our experience. Loss is happening all the time. It's actually happening in every moment. Now, Sariputta was the chief disciple of the Buddha and quite a bit older than the Buddha. 
when Sariputta died, the Buddha commented that it was as if the light of the sun and the moon had disappeared from the sky. That's a very both beautiful and striking image, an image of loss. Now, how would we feel if the light of the sun and the moon disappeared from the sky? So it's aware that he, it's clear that he was very aware and experienced this feeling. But can we consider the possibility of experiencing the feeling of loss without the attendant sorrow and grief? Because those are two different things. In one way, I see our practice as opening to the possibility of new levels of experience and what from one level may seem impossible. Now, how could we lose a loved one and not feel sorrow, not feel grief? And from our ordinary level of understanding, that's quite true. And so from that level, it's quite a normal feeling. And yet from another level of understanding, Maybe we could feel the loss, be with the loss, without the sorrow, without the grief. And just to stay open to that investigation, to that possibility. I want to read what the Buddha said is the fruit or the... the benefit, the fruit of this practice of mindfulness. This is from the Satipatthana Discourse, Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. He said, this is the way, this very practice that we're doing, this is the way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for reaching the noble path, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So the Buddha is saying very clearly, yes, it is possible to overcome sorrow and lamentation, to overcome pain and grief and sorrow. We want to stay open to both the possibilities and understanding of how these emotions arise, what is fueling them, be with them as they do arise, but see the possibility actually of freeing ourselves. When a house is burning, the fire is put out by water. In the same way the wise person lets go of sorrow like the wind blowing away a tuft of cotton. Those who are searching for their own happiness should pull out the dart they have stuck in themselves, the arrowhead of grieving, of desiring, of despair. Those who have taken out the dart, who have no clinging, who has attained peace of mind, passed beyond all grief, this person is still. we actually can remove this dart of suffering. But we need to be skillful in our understanding of how to do it. It's not by pretending. It's not by suppression. It's not by denying or ignoring. It's learning how to work skillfully with all of these emotions as they arise. My mind is just going off on several different byways at the moment. In one place, the Buddha said again, quite strikingly, that as long as there are tendencies 
for clinging to the pleasant, aversion to the unpleasant, or ignorance about the neutral, freedom is not possible. That's a very simple statement about what our practice is about. Can we play at the boundaries, play at the edges of what is acceptable? Right? We're going along and everything is fine, and there's a certain amount of pain that we can be with, and there's a certain kind of mind state, range of mind states that we can be with, but then we come in a sitting or walking, and we're at the edge. It's too uncomfortable, it's too unpleasant, it's too whatever. Right there is the interesting place of practice. Can we open to whatever that experience is without clinging if it's pleasant, without aversion if it's unpleasant? That is the place of freedom for us. That is the place of practicing freedom. To sit in a wonderful, concentrated, calm, blissful, tingly space is very nice. And I hope you have many such sittings. But so what? <laughs> Are we learning anything in that? Are we actually practicing the mind of freedom? Use the times of difficulties. That's the time when we can really open beyond what our boundaries are, beyond our limitations. Okay, so the first of the unwholesome actions of mind is covetousness. The second is ill will in all of its different forms and its most subtle forms. And the third of the unwholesome actions of mind is wrong view. Now, wrong view is a very powerful force in our lives. One aspect of it is the wrong view that actions don't have any consequences, that actions don't bear results. When people have this wrong view, this misunderstanding, then we don't take care with our actions. And it's very difficult then to actually navigate through our lives in a way that brings us happiness because we're not cognizant or aware or acknowledging the fact that each of our actions does bear fruit. It's like a seed. So we need to have an increasingly deep understanding and awareness of the law of karma, that our actions have power, that they bring results. And we need to ask ourselves, with respect to our actions, where is this action leading? Is it leading to happiness for myself or others? Is it leading to suffering? Do I want to go where this action is leading? There's another aspect of wrong view, which often people don't consider. And that is the wrong view that there are no enlightened beings in this world. Now, you might say, what's the particular relevance to me of that wrong view? Maybe there are, maybe there aren't. But it's really about acknowledging the possibility of enlightenment for ourselves and all others. Because this aspect of wrong view, that there are no enlightened beings in the world, gets personalized into feelings of unworthiness, which can arise quite commonly in our practice and in our lives. Now this feeling of unworthiness may well be conditioned by circumstances of our childhood or upbringing, whatever, and so they've been internalized. But the Dalai Lama had a very um, sharp retort 
to somebody who was asking about unworthiness. And I was in a group situation and somebody asked him about the feeling of unworthiness, saying that they were feeling very unworthy. The Dalai Lama, in this interchange, he said, you're wrong. You're mm -hmm. absolutely wrong. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was so strong. Why did he say that? And why did he say it with such strength and such confidence? Because whatever the relative conditioning is in our lives that may have produced these feelings of unworthiness, to the extent that we believe it, that we are buying into that story, we are not connecting with, open to, realizing, experiencing the fundamental nature of freedom and of compassion in the mind. That the basic nature of our minds, the potential of our minds is enlightenment, is awakening. And when we connect with that, no matter what our particular personal story is, we are getting underneath any particular feelings of unworthiness. Because we're, we're connecting with the source. So this is a very important understanding because it becomes the foundation then for all our endeavors and a strength in the face of whatever particular storyline we have, whatever particular conditioning, you know, or feelings we have. We see that at the heart of it is the potential for awakening, for freedom. And this is true of all of us. So these are the ten unwholesome actions. Three of body, not killing, not stealing, not sexual misconduct. Four of speech, not lying. Not harsh speech, not gossip, not frivolous speech. And three of the mind, covetousness, ill will, and wrong view. The great power of awareness is that we can work with all of these actions, refrain from them if the mind states arise, see them and not identify with them. One way you might work with any of the unwholesome mind states that arise, unwholesome actions of mind, given this time of year, and it's a way that I found very helpful, let's say covetousness arises, or ill will arises, or unworthiness arises, or discouragement arises. See them all as kids in Halloween costumes. So it's just a kid in a costume coming to the door. When a pirate comes to the door, do you get frightened? No. Or a ghost, or a goblin, or an ogre, or whatever. No, it's just a little kid in a costume. And you give them some candy, or sweets, or whatever. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Can you do that with the goblins of your own mind? They're empty mind states. They're dressed up to look this way or that way. When you see that they are essentially empty of any substance, that's when they lose their power. You can have that friendly attitude towards them all, not become identified with them, non-reactive, and then they all wash through. So these are the ten unwholesome actions the Buddha pointed out, really out of compassion. He said, these cause suffering. Don't do them for your own welfare, for your own happiness, for your own well-being. We can do this. We can train ourselves in this way. The Dalai Lama, in one of his books, wrote that he came from an area of Tibet where people are very short-tempered. 
and that this was a characteristic quality of people from that area, but that over the years he's trained himself. You know, he said that now anger or irritation doesn't arise so often, and when it does, it's just for a few, few moments, and then the mind is clear again. He said that even though he's a lazy practitioner, you know, because he doesn't have so much time, still he's seen much improvement. So I thought that was a very charming and encouraging uh, communication. We actually can train ourselves. You know, we've all been habituated in certain ways, but through awareness we can let go of what's unskillful, what's unwholesome. Well, I finished about half the talk because I also had wanted to go on to the wholesome actions, which actually are more uplifting. <laughs> but I think I won't and I'll save it for another time. But I do want to read one thing from that and maybe in the list of the wholesome actions which are the cause of happiness in our lives and the happiness for other people one of those wholesome actions is that of service that is where we <coughs> dedicate our lives, our aspirations, our practice for the benefit of all. And there's one text, the name of it is Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, where there's a prayer is included in the text. It's called the Seven-Branched Prayer. And it's really a very beautiful expression of the dedication of one's life and practice and actions to the welfare and well-being of all. And of course this was, I don't remember exa the exact date when this was written, but it was you know, 700 or 1000 AD, something like that. So. Of course, the, the metaphors are from India of that time, so keep that in mind. The feeling behind it is really what infuses the aspiration for bodhicitta, that our practice benefit all beings. So this is the prayer. May I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road. For those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an isle for those who yearn for landfall, and a lamp for those who long for light. For those who need a resting place, a bed. And for all who need a servant, may I be a servant. May I be the wishing jewel, the vase of plenty, a word of power, and the supreme remedy. May I be the tree of miracles, and for every being the abundant cow. Like the great earth and the other elements, enduring as the sky itself endures. For the boundless multitude of living beings, May I be the ground and vessel of their life. Thus, for every single thing that lives, in number like the boundless reaches of the sky, may I be their sustenance and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. It's really a prayer of aspiration.
Can we dedicate our practice? Can we dedicate our actions? Can we dedicate our lives to the welfare and happiness and benefit of all beings? Can we aspire to that? Even if we just touch it in a very small degree, this can become the direction of our lives. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.